As we constantly move forward, there's a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. The first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today, uh, I'm excited to have with us a couple medical doctors uh, trying to improve uh, medical education, uh, Maggie Carey and uh, Jack Penner, uh, both at uh, Georgetown University. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. So, Maggie, let's start with you. You're CEO of a consulting and coaching group called Carey, uh, the Carey Group a Global. You're a, a Georgetown coach, as am I, and, and you're an MD. You've got an MBA and other various degrees, and you've worked as a faculty member at a number of uh, universities, and you've done work with nonprofits and other organizations. But let's uh, hop in the time machine. What were some of the early influences that put you on your current path? Um. Let me think for just a minute. I'd really have to say my English teacher mom, because she taught us to read and write before kindergarten. She also told me I could be whatever I wanted to be. And then there's my dad, because he loved arts and science. He was a brilliant aerospace engineer, and both of them really inspired my relentless curiosity about science and sort of what makes people tick as well. Now, to mention them, I also have to tell you about my eighth-grade algebra teacher, King Stevens, who told taught me a new word, individualist, which he said I was, and not the weird kid my classmates saw me as. <laughs> Beautiful. And uh, Jack, uh, uh, same question for you, but a little different background. You, uh, you've been a Marine Rescue EMT, uh, California. I've got sort of a Baywatch kind of uh, image in my mind, and, and now you're a medical, uh, uh, I think you've uh, finished uh, finishing up, uh, you're in your residence at Georgetown, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what were uh, some of the early influences that put you on your current path? Yeah, I mean... One of the biggest influences on my career has been my dad, who is a primary care physician in Northern California, where I grew up. Yep. He's an old school physician at heart. Uh, so I was raised really in constant earshot from conversations about the art of medicine. You know, he didn't really talk a lot about the science and the physiology, but I got to learn and watch the way that he communicated with patients, the way that he would talk to them on the phone. And then every time we would, we would go, out, go out to dinner, I was always able to, you know, see a patient who would come up to him because we lived in a pretty small town and they would just say, you know, what a big difference my dad has made for their life. And so that really, I think, indoctrinated me into the concept of the art of being a bedside physician. And I've gravitated towards that all throughout medical school so far. I was, uh, I was also a water polo player all the way through college and I had some amazing coaches 
really throughout middle school and high school who really taught me what it means to work hard and also what it means to be a leader in the service of others. And so I think now as I'm coming to, coming to the end of my third year of medical school and getting ready to apply to different residency programs, mm-hmm. I think I'm seeing a confluence of these concepts in my work with Maggie, uh, you know, yeah. really bedside, bedside medicine and patient-physician communication combined with some of the leadership skills that we're trying to help uh, medical students un- uncover in themselves. Awesome. And you know, as you know, on this program, uh, you know, Mark Somerville and I wrote the book, A Whole New Engineer, and we talk about a lot in there about the centrality of unleashing experiences in 21st century education in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, yeah, and I guess my question is what, uh, what experiences or individuals uh, helped and you both have gone your own way. You're doing things that are counter-medical education culture. Um, what what gave you the courage to go your own way, uh, Maggie, then Jack? So when I was a kid, it wasn't really an option because I was the weird nerd who managed only one year <laughs> in all my under before college, one year of being one of the popular kids. And oddly enough, it was when I wasn't trying to be someone else or please someone else. In your book, you mentioned four keys to unleash young engineers, joy, yep. trust, openness and connection. For me, I have to say it was the joy of being accepted to medical school. A goal I'd mm. had since fourth grade was key. It was yeah. really I felt called to be, become a physician. And then the joy of learning how the human body worked and caring for people and the connectedness that I developed with others once I started to open up and to trust people. Yeah, nice. And same question for you, Jack. Uh, Unleashing what what's what's given who or what has helped give you the courage to go your own way so far? Yeah, you know I love that you asked this question because this, as Maggie can vouch for, is really a constant battle for me. Uh, and it's been one of the big one of the big points that we've been focusing on um, in our coaching relationship, where she helps coach me through medical school. I've always been a bit of a people pleaser, uh, oftentimes at the expense of my own internal desire. So yeah. going my own way was really foreign for me until pretty late in college. Uh, yeah. Up until that point, I really relied on a lot of different external factors to form my, to form my identity and my sense of self. You know, I was an athlete. Uh, I worked at the beach. Uh, I was involved in various activities at school, and I wanted to become a doctor. And all of these things really were the foundation of who I was. Yeah. And then when I stopped, when I, when I stopped playing water polo, I lost this huge chunk of who I was. And I went through a pretty like introspective time where I really had to start to work on figuring out who I was. Cause I just felt like that kind of <laughs> quarter life crisis that I went through, I guess you could call it. I just yeah. felt like that was not a sustainable way to, to live and to go through life. And so, you know, that experience really kicked all of it off, kind of figure out who I was when I finished playing water polo. And honestly, I feel like I'm just starting to come into my own right now. Uh, I started working with Maggie and I've had this, a couple really close friends at medical school and my girlfriends that putting my authentic self into the world is a constant battle for me. And, you know, I remember the first time we talked, we talked a lot about the concept of openness and vulnerability, both in engineers and medical students. And this past year, I've been trying to really lean into those two things. And to circle back to the concepts from the book Maggie mentioned, it's led to a lot of, a, a lot of newfound levels of trust, a lot of new connections and a lot, a lot of joy. 
Yeah, so there's a lot packed into that. I and I'm hearing and some and and it's uh, so interesting. You know, with you know Maggie and I are both coaches, and it's it's beautiful when people allow you in and and allow you to um, help on that journey. And so you know, coaching is um, coaching can be a a, a way to um, unleash if you find a coach that isn't trying to tell you what to do, but is really being more of a pure coach and trying to pull out of you what's already in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I'm, you know, and, and, um, and, and I remember back to our first conversation, we um, connected around these common uh, ideas, but um, we got together in connection with uh, uh, this coaching program that uh, uh, Maggie. Well, I'm not. I'm not sure I have the history clear, but that is now at Georgetown. Uh, uh, it's extracurricular. It's not sort of an official activity. So, um, if tell us what that's about, and and uh, and and what was the motivation for starting it? Uh, who wants to go first? So I'll just say something brief, and then I'll let Jack take over. The motivation for me was as a, I coach almost exclusively physicians, and I was yeah. as I was coaching them, I realized that wouldn't it be more effective if we started sort of younger? And about that time, Jack came into my life. We started coaching, and I also remember the abuse I went through and how nice it would have been to have somebody there. And now I'll let Jack tell the story. Thanks, Maggie. Yeah, um, I you know for me it, it really came down to scratching my own itch. Um, When I first, kind of in the month leading up to when I first started working with Maggie, I had this looming, developing fear that I was going to succumb to burnout and kind of all of these horror stories that you hear physicians going through where the workload gets to be too much, they lose their sense of meaning in medicine. And I was really nervous uh, during my second year that as I transitioned to the clinical years that I knew were going to be incredibly demanding that I was going to fall victim to that. And I've, I've, I've always had a coach. I've always been someone who has mm. looked to people who are older than me or people who had a lot more experience for a sense of guidance. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a faculty member put me in touch with, with Maggie, who just has an immense background of experience, both working with physicians and also as an educator. And so when we really started to hit it off and I immediately felt the positive impact that coaching was going to have, I you know, I said to myself, there has to be other medical students who would benefit from this. One of the common things that always comes up in conversations when students start to talk about some of the challenges that they're facing is what I call a, a me too phenomenon, where one student will open up about something and then six other students around them will say, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, you're going through that? So am I. Like, me too, me too, me too. And yep. so I thought to myself, you know, maybe if, if, if this coaching thing is for me, if it's helping me battle some of some of these challenges that I'm feeling like are going to be coming up on the horizon soon, it must be there's a good chance that it's going to be beneficial for some other students. And so after that, we really just pulled the trigger. You know, Maggie's incredibly good at saying, well, let's just try it. So we figured let's try to put together a workshop. And we've really been flying by the seat of our pants ever since then. And so, and yeah, again, give give the timeline. When so when so you started coaching with Maggie, and then and then you started doing it with others. What? How long ago are we talking now? So we started working together. I think we first met. We first got connected at the end of my first year. So that would have been yeah. in July of 2015. But our schedules, okay. we just never ended up being able to meet. 
And so yep. we didn't start working together until about April of 2016. Yep. And then we held our first workshop in October of 2016 and our second one in March of 2017. So we're coming up on about 15 months now of working together. Okay. And then, and then, and the structure of the, the way that you share coaching, uh, what's the structure of the program? How, what are the nuts and bolts of it? How does it, uh, there's a workshop, there's, is there one-on-one coaching? What's the, what's the structure of it? So, you know, it starts off with a workshop where we bring students together on a Saturday and it's completely volunteer based. So students volunteer their time on a Saturday and we try to touch on, topics that aren't, aren't traditionally covered in a medical curriculum. Um, you know, we, we address concepts like polarity thinking and kind of how to solve unsolvable problems in medicine yep. and in medical school. Maggie yep. gives it a phenomenal introduction talk to coaching. We yep. bring in um, some, some, some of her friends who are leaders in medical innovation to talk about healthcare innovation. Um, we bring in some experienced physicians to talk about kind of, you know, what, uh, what I wish I, I had learned and so that main workshop day then feeds into a recurring learning community um, okay. where we meet up for brunches like every four to eight weeks to check in on how the coaching process is going. And in that interval time, um, we pair the students up with a coach for 10 free one-on-one sessions. Um, and I'll let Maggie explain kind of how she was able to address the beginnings of the coaching relationships between the students and the executive coaches that she knows. So I just asked people if they'd like to be a part of creating a whole new doctor. That was after I that was after I talked to you. Before it was, how would you like to create the physician of the future? And so, what you you enlist uh, people to do uh, pro bono coaching with in this one on one these uh, ten one on one uh, experiences. Right, and what, what we found is it was sort of Ohio State University had a similar program, and they now have more, they train their faculty, and they have now have more coaches than they have students. And so we started off, and every one of our coaches in the first session re-upped for the second except for two, and that's because they had conflicts. What was interesting is many of them referred friends of theirs. So we mm-hmm. had more, more than enough coaches, in fact, and we could only give um, each coach one student so a few of the coaches who only got one and wanted two emailed me and asked why, but we had, we had one coach that didn't get anybody. So, so she's first on our list for next time. Oh, that's great. And, and, um, and so um, you know, it sounds like you're still learning, and, and uh, what, uh, what, what have been some of your takeaways from the first couple of workshops and iterations on this? What have you learned? Well, I've learned that the coaches love working with the medical students, um, and <laughs> they because they're really bright and they're really motivated. And one of the things so that I hear was, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know medical students had to work so hard. Every minute of the day is scripted." Yeah. Um, and so that's been my experience. But I think the more compelling evidence is what Jack. Jack, I work with the coaches, and Jack works with the students. And I think he can tell you some stories. Yeah, Jack. What what have what are, what are your takeaways or lear- big learning so far? I mean, I think to to this date, my my favorite text message I've ever received from a student after a coaching session was, "Oh my gosh, Jack! I just met with my coach. I think she's my soulmate." Um, <laughs> and I think that 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 really sums up the connections that the students and the coaches are forging together. You know, I think for the 
for the workshop itself, there have been some different reactions than the overall coaching process. For the workshop itself, because we have students from the first through the fourth year of medical school who attend, there's a great community and uh, camaraderie that develops in between the classes, which is a little bit harder to come by. So students seem to really enjoy that. And then they also find it so refreshing to step out of, you know, the fact-based, knowledge-based learning and really move into a more skill-based, competency-based type of learning where things are very hands-on, it's dynamic. And so those seem to be the benefits of the workshop. And then for the coaching, I think just the overall sense of support that uh, students feel in terms of working with their coaches, you know, one of the things that Maggie and I have learned is really the difference between mentorship and coaching. Yeah. And, you know, just pulling up some of the some of the feedback that we have from some of the students involved in the coaching program. I have one here that says, I had my first coaching session yesterday. My coach is absolutely amazing and it went really well. I wasn't sure what to expect, but she has so many amazing ideas for preparing me for the next phase of my career. I'm so glad I got involved in this. And then we have another, another student who talks about um, how, how his biggest takeaway has been working on his communication skills. He yeah. says, you know, I feel like most of the challenges I face in medical school come back to a deficit communication. And yeah. it's been so helpful working with my coach because she gives me an objective, an objective evaluation of what's happening and real directive feedback for me to try again. And I know that she's going to be there the next time we meet up to talk about how it goes. Yeah, nice. And, and, you know, so I actually been thinking a lot about a lot about this polarity between sort of expertise, you know, the, the words mentor and coach get thrown down, thrown around as synonymous, but really, in some sense, they're opposites. The mentor has expertise that shares with the mentee and uh, the hopes that the experience will be relevant, because the 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 person is in the same field or a little, uh, perhaps a little bit younger, can learn from the the more experienced person. Of course, a coach is really all about drawing out from from the other. And so it's really those being, you know, you're talking about polarity management, they're really opposites. And uh, one of, uh, actually, Mark Stevens at Penn State um, coined this really nice term. He said, what we need in, in education, higher education, we need moaches, we need mentor coaches. Comment, Maggie. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's interesting because we learned sort of one way to be a coach, the ICF way at Georgetown, yeah. and yet yeah. I think most of us work in service of the client yeah. because sometimes people can't figure out the options because they've never been exposed to them. Yeah. And so I think as a coach, it's really about... Um, it's really about being curious, staying curious and having trust with your client. And when I started, I thought I was sort of looking for physicians to coach them. Well, there's not a whole lot of physician coaches. And it turned out it doesn't, you know, what they told us in this case is actually true. It doesn't really matter. Um, our coaches have provided, our, we call them our fellows, all kinds of tools and ways of being. And yeah. it's just been remarkable. Yeah. Nice. Uh, and uh, I'll ask you, Jack, uh, comment on the, on the need need or not. Do we need moches or not? I, I think I think definitely. You know, I I really like the concept of a moach. I've never heard that before. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna steal that if you don't mind and use that. Um, uh, it's, it's Mark think, Stevens' term. Okay, perfect. Yeah, you know, I think one of the one of the real fundamental differences that comes up between I think between mentor. 
uh, mentorship and coaching is something that Maggie brought up recently about what makes for an effective teacher. And a great teacher, she said she heard in a quote that uh, a great teacher teaches students to become who they are rather than teaching students to become who the teacher wants them to be. And I think oftentimes because of that expertise factor, a mentor can have a certain set of preconceived notions about who that student ought to be. And there can be a push to that at the expense of who the student is best served to become. And I have felt like both in my own experience as a, uh, as a coaching client and also in talking to some of my classmates, um, the coaches are really bringing out who the students are. Let's, uh, we're going to leave the segment on that great thought. And uh, next segment, let's come back. And I, um, Maggie, you've been writing about uh, non-technical skills for surgeons, and I want to come back and talk about that. How about that? Sure. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special uh, special guest, Maggie Carey and Jack Penner. Um, and stay with us in the next segment. We're going to talk about non-technical or what we call shift skills for surgeons. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution or organization. And you can um, make comments about the show at uh, hashtag Big Beacon on Twitter. And also the segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. It's for medical doctors. Uh, we don't, we've never had a law, any lawyers. I'm, 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 I'm waiting for us to have some lawyers on the show. But anyways, mm-hmm. welcome back, uh, uh, Maggie, uh, Carrie, and Jack Penner. And we're talking about this uh, really interesting uh, coaching 
program, uh, and 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 this, and we didn't talk about it in the last segment, but this is this is all extracurricular. This is not sponsored. This is not kind of mainstream or has any official sanction. Is that right? <laughs> that is right, Jack. <laughs> yeah, we are. Uh, so Georgetown has an an incredible program that they just rolled out when I was a first year medical student, so two years ago, um, and it's called the Learning Societies. And what they are is they're, they're student-run organizations. You can think of them kind of like the houses in Harry Potter. Okay. So there's, there's, uh, there's five different learning societies that students are paired into during their first year. Yep. And each of the learning societies is run by students. And then there's an a, a overall student governing body that oversees all of the learning societies. And uh, I was lucky enough to get to be on the board of one of my of, uh, of my society, the Harvey Society, named after uh, Proctor Harvey, one of Georgetown's famous cardiologists. And yes. he, uh, you know, the, the way that we were able to start this is as a society project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it basically is a student-run group uh, called A Whole New Doctor, where we are able to do this kind of outside of the, the traditional medical curriculum, which lets us avoid some of the uh, bureaucratic obstacles that can come up. Sure. Nice. Well, so so there wasn't. I mean, there was institutional support. That's really nice. And actually, from a theoretical framework, having those societies makes a lot of sense from a community perspective. The you know some of the research says the single most important variable on transitions into new organizations is connectedness. So having those societies there has probably been a boon to um, some sort of connection and been helpful. Um, to other, you know, not just in, in, in your work, but in some of these other societies. Has, has there been any, do you know if there's been any uh, research on, on the effectiveness of the, the, the societies? So I know that there, that there are on, ongoing projects evaluating yeah. some of the various factors of the medical student experience. I don't know what the specifics of those are, but they are definitely doing, doing research into it. And what's also great is that all of the societies are very close. So it's not necessarily uh, a competitive thing where you yep. only work with students who are in your society. It's really a collaborative process among the whole student body, which has been wonderful. Well, that's great. And I, I really like, I like to see where uh, universities are thinking outside the box and thinking about community outside the classroom. It's really about culture change, and, and uh, that, that's, a, that's a lovely exemplar. So um, I, I wanted to turn to uh, – I, I, was kind of boning up on what to talk about on this show, and I, I came across this article, Maggie, that you read uh, wrote about uh, non-technical skills uh, for surgeons, NOTS, N-O-T-S-S, that uh, might save someone's life. Uh, what's that article all about? So I, I, I came across this last year, I think, and found out that the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh developed an assessment that would gauge surgeons' leadership effectiveness in the operating room or theater, as they call it in the U.K. And the short version is surgeons who are effective leaders kill fewer people, kill and maim fewer people, which seems to be intuitive, but this is science, so there had to be a study. And so I... I went to Glasgow and took a class there and then last week took the Stanford version to see what it's all about. But it's much of what we do in coaching, which is an assessment for observed behavior and then rating people and debriefing. Mm-hmm. And, and so what are some of the, what are some of the key, um, I actually, I was reading the article and, and in, co- in coaching, sort of the central 
central skill of being a coach. You're sort of a, a noticing or awareness amplifier. And one of the things you talked about uh, in the medical context was situa- situational awareness. How does that how does that show up in um, for a surgeon or a medical doctor? Well, this is this is interesting because um, we actually. In the Harvard version, we actually had a half day in a simulation lab, which was very, very enlightening. So in situational awareness for a surgeon has three components. Number one, gathering information. Two, understanding the information that you've gathered. And then three, being able to project and anticipate the future state, which sounds just like coaching. You know, observing, right? I mean, it's so amazing. So... The way it works in this is the gathering information, if you do it effectively, you can do preoperative checks of patients, the notes that are in, you know, before you go in the OR, you read the patient's notes, including all the labs, the imaging studies, make sure the consent's in the chart, you ensure that, that the results, like imaging studies, are available in the OR, or at least can be available by phone. The surgeon talks with the anesthesiologist regarding the, the anesthesia plan for the patient, and the surgeon also moves the table, kind of the lights, you know, positions everything before yep. beginning. Um, and identifies the anatomy clearly, which side it is, and monitors ongoing blood loss and asks the anesthesiologist for up- updates. Usually it's the anesthesiologist that monitors how much blood is going into in a container, and then you allow a certain number of cc's per, per spine, what are, what are these pieces of cloth you use to mop up blood. So now this is probably obvious to your listeners, right? So I'm going to tell you, what happens in ineffective behaviors, many of which I have seen while in surgery. So, are you ready? Um, Arriving late to the operating room or having to be called several times on the loudspeaker. One time, somebody came in and said, oh, I'm sorry, I had to get a cup of coffee first. Um, And the patient had been asleep for 30 minutes. Remember, you want to minimize the time a patient's asleep for. Yeah, another thing is to not ask for results of labs or imaging studies until the last minute. Like you walk and say, hey, what are, what, you know, what are the results of the lab? Can you show me those imaging studies? Some, some surgeons don't see them at all. Um, the other thing is not, to cons- another is not to consider what the other people in the operating room might say, not to consider their views. And sometimes it's the medical student or somebody who's low down in the totem pole who's not seen it, who has the curious eyes to be able to point something out. Um, Sometimes surgeons don't listen to anesthesiologists. Sometimes they're having wars with them. They may, again, fail to review information that's been collected by the operating room team. Um, And they also may uh, ask for for somebody in the operating room team to read from the patient's chart because the doctor didn't read it before the surgery. Yeah. So let's go. I'll go to understanding information. Means the surgeon acts appropriately and points out the significant. You know, sort of teaches and said here this information means this. This is what I'm thinking of. And believe it or not, some surgeons miss clear signs. And this is such a coaching thing. And they reject results that don't fit fit with their picture or their mindset. This is coaching 101. Changing mindsets. So looking in the let future, me, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt. Yeah. I want to sort of, I want to get Jack into the conversation. Jack, so sure. you know, as a what what's your perspective on some of these things from from the the newbie student perspective? I I think one of one of the things that that stands out is how how early on in our careers some of these behaviors that we see perpetuated across generations um, become the norm. I think. You know, I can remember on my 
general surgery rotation, which was my first rotation of third year this year. Um, it's like, it's sort of one of your, one of your big clinical clerkships. And I started out the year on it and I saw all of these behaviors at the beginning, arriving to the operating room late, having to be called multiple times. And for me, you know, it was my first exposure to what surgery was. And to be honest, you know, you hope and you're optimistic that there are going to be those, those surgeons who, you know, are the great leaders that Maggie talks about. And they're certainly out there. I can say that they tend to be the exception rather than the norm. And so you start to think as a student, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, oh, I guess this is just the way that it is. And I think we've seen a lot in many different other areas of medicine that kind of the, this idea of this is the way it is permeates the culture. And I think that that can really hold back some of the innovative progressive change that we talk about. That's so interesting. I was just, as you were talking, Jack, I was thinking back to um, some of the early days in iFoundry, and it's a completely different context, but the same idea that, um, and it's about, but it's about transition. So here you are, you're the third year medical student, you're in your first rotation, and you're really hoping to see some kick ass doctors. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you're really hoping to see some, you know, you're just hoping, you know, you in your whole life, you've been dreaming for, in, for in many cases to be a doctor, and so now here it is, boom! You're, you're and so, and and then you see these um, counter examples of of what 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 you think, and you go, oh, and it, it sounds like a huge letdown, and and it seems to me that it's a similar kind of thing. Students come to campus the first year out of high school, and they're really looking for something to be different. And they realize that it's high school plus plus, and they go to sleep again. This, uh, it just sounds to me like the same. It seems the same. Oh, okay. I thought doctors were kind of better than the ordinary human beings, but nope. We're just we're kind of just like the rest of everybody, is what I'm hearing. Comment. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to want to point fingers at specific nope. physicians or say that you know this this physician did a bad job because it's 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 a systemic cultural issue. You know, there's, they either aren't, aren't held accountable for these behaviors, or again, it's something that, that they learned very, very early on decades ago in their own medical education experience. Yep. And so it definitely, it definitely is a, a, a letdown. And I constantly think back to how grateful I am to have Maggie as a coach in this, because it's, these are experiences that I can talk to her about and that I can bounce off of her and get feedback from somebody who has the experience to say, okay, here's what's really going on here. You don't need to be discouraged, and you also don't have to practice this way, whereas some other students who can only talk to residents who are directly in the system as it is right now or to other students who are having the same experiences, they don't necessarily have that bigger picture 360-degree feedback. Yeah. Maggie, your, and your comment about this transitional uh, observation or, or, or continue, I interrupted you. Please can continue your choice. No, you didn't. I, I, I'm glad you asked for Jack to be in. So, I, you know, I just, and I've seen the same things, all these things happening. And so the future, a good surgeon will plan. So you walk into a case and there's a word that some doctors use, which is juicy meaning the case may be juicy, it may bleed a lot. And it turns out that all these terms are different in different, different cultures, and I mean different hospital cultures, yeah. not different sure. ethnic cultures. And so 
a good surgeon really looks at the case, figures out, you know, we might hit a bleeder, what we should do, I may need such and such, this kind of instrument, be sure we have it on, you know, on hand in case I need it, you know, because some of this stuff ha- is, they don't have that much of it, it has to be, make sure it's been sterilized, and a good surgeon says, you know, I think we may have some extra bleeding with this case, so be sure we have some blood type and cross-matched, um, so... And some surgeons come in and they're overconfident and will brag about, you know, they don't discuss potential problems and they wait for the problem to occur before they respond or do anything. Now, think about who you'd like to be your surgeon. Probably not the one who waits until the end. Jack, what do you think on that one? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one one of the hardest pills to swallow, I think, as I think about going into my clinical career is this idea that I'm spending so much time training and learning and, uh, you know, really grooving these foundational principles of medicine that by the time I get to be the attending, the person who's leading the team, you, you want to show your stuff, right? You want to be like, there is a certain appeal, I think, especially when it comes to surgery to being the person who can come in and swoop in and save the day. And that's often glorified as, Oh, look at this, look at this surgeon who has such excellent skill that they don't even need to think about the problem. And I think that that, that, that narrative gets switched in a course like not, um, which is necessary and important because I think it can reframe the way that we look at good leadership as not being these acts of incredible skill or talent, but really as, as acts of humility and good, good communication and, uh, you know, proactive leadership. Well, and that, and actually, that brings up uh, my next question in this this knots framework. That um, you know, essentially, and and you know, we we you know, I, I think television helps with this narrative of the heroic doctor whose singular skill saves the day, and yet he or she is not standing there alone in the operating room. I mean, there, there's exactly. a, there's a team of people. And so it, so medicine is a, well, uh, or you go into just an, you go into an emergency room or you go into a, a, a regular GP's office, it's still a team sport. So what, what, what's the collaborative, how's the collaborative side of medicine being dealt with these days, Maggie? What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I guess uh, so. We're fairly explicit in engineering about when we're doing project courses that it is a team sport, and uh, the the grading is team wise, and the uh, and the exercise is team wise, and and actually, I think that's one of the things that engineering education does well. So I'm curious how um, how is either team or individual skill is 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 the is the narrative and the and the view that that uh, individual skill is cultivated mainly in, in medicine, or is there, is there an emphasis on collaboration and teamwork? And to what well, extent? That's a, that's a really good question, because in medicine, it's really about how you get paid. I mean, in medicine, it's all about the money. Um, to keep the, and I'm not being cynical. It's just that it often is all about the money. And mm-hmm. so I think that with what are called, you know, with accountable care organizations, which will pay for in re- value-based care, which pays for results and not processes, I think that we're sort of lurching toward more effective teamwork. Some places do it really, really well, and I think for, you know, how do you build build it? It's the same as with any p- team. You practice, you debrief, you practice, you debrief, and you train yeah. observers to watch for effective and ineffective leadership. 
I think with the given culture of blame and shame in medicine, it's probably easier, at least in the beginning, to have someone from the outside do this, someone not on the surgical team, until the process is established. And I was at these simulation labs at Stratus at Harvard, and I have to say participating in a simulation is the best way to learn how you react in an emergency. I made a much better assistant surgeon or medical student than I did circulating nurse because I hadn't a clue what a circulating nurse did. So I was wandering around looking <laughs> looking out of place. And yeah. the most effective part of that was the act, after action debrief. And what I, what's, it's about muscle and cognitive memory. And one of the, yeah. there's many, many articles, more in surgery, a little bit in emergency departments, about how these simulations really help, help people to make things happen automatically so they don't have to think about it. Because when you have to think about something, it uses cognitive load that you might be able to use elsewhere. So now can I talk about CUS a little bit, that acronym? Well, we're, we actually need to, we need to take a break, but I'll give you, I'll give you the last, uh, last bit of airtime in the segment, and you can give us the short version. Okay. But, but, uh, I'm giving you the last bit of airtime in this. Oh, in, in this, this one, okay. This, this so session, you can give it, yeah, kind of quickly. So CUSS is, us. C-U-S-S is a mnemonic for staff to communicate with surgeons. starts out mm. with the C. I'm concerned about what you're doing. The yeah. U is, I don't understand what you're doing. This S is, this has become a serious situation. And the second S is, please stop what you're doing. The benefit of it is once an operating team remembers it, it's easier to recall during high-stress situations. Because of the mnemonic, CUS uses one's cognitive resources effectively, and these cognitive resources are depleted during the times when you really sure. need to speak up. Yeah, no, and that's so interesting, and the kinds of ways that we can um, uh, scaffold change with with structure, linguistic structure, and uh, and sticky structure, and that uh, can help us in these times. Great way, great way. Then the segment. Let's uh, let's take a bit of a break, and and we'll come back in the last segment and talk a bit about um, what what does any of this mean for the future of medical education and other higher education. So this is Big uh, Beacon Radio with our uh, special guests uh, Maggie Carey and Jack Penner. And in the next segment, we're going to talk about what this all means for the future of medical education. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final uh, segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us in July um, for four keys to ineffective change or how to botch transformation without really trying. Learn the four mistakes that people make in modern change initiatives, how to overcome them, and learn how you can join Big Beacon's communities of innovators today. Go to bigbeacon.org or sign, to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And we're back with Maggie Carey and Jack Penner, and we're talking about um, we're talking about coaching and 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 uh, non technical skill in in medical education. And um, I guess you know, so it it seems as though there's you know, certainly an engineering education. We're seeing liberal education change a fair amount. We're we're kind of seeing people responding to environmental factors and in, in ways to try to to try to make fairly substantive changes in education generally what what's your uh, uh, Maggie and Jack we'll start with Maggie your assessment of the thirst for change in medical education Maggie oh so I think it depends on whom you ask yeah. um, last year Ohio State University graduated its first medical school class that had coaching all four years they used faculty yeah. as coaches and when they started, it was hard to get faculty to want to do it. Now they have more coaches than they have students. Yeah. Um, last fall, Dale Medical School, the University of Texas, enrolled their first medical school class, and a guy named uh, Eddie Erlinson, who's a former vascular surgeon who became a coach, leads the school's coaching and leadership development programs. Dale also has pro- programs in innovation and design thinking, ways yeah. to engage those six minds you mentioned, analytical, design, people, yeah. linguistic, body, and mindful. So... I think it's um, commoner, more common for medical schools to have leadership training for faculty, maybe, and a few have coaches for resident physicians. A handful offer coaches for medical students. Um, I think I've talked to most of them. If not, I'd be happy to talk to whomever else is out there. So I think the desire for change is more prevalent than the actions. Medical schools tend to be conservative. Jack? Yeah, Jack. Yeah. Your your take. I think... I think there's an interesting contrast between the student's desire for change and then not necessarily the desire to change, but the ability to affect it from those who are really driving the curricular shift. Among my classmates, you know, there's a constant communication about ways that medical education could be improved. And, you know, it's been fascinating to look at this from a more cultural perspective. Um, Most of my class, I think everybody who is in medical school now, for the most part, I would say, at least 80% of them come from, you know, what has been called the millennial generation. And there's been a lot of, of, of really great work and great articles done on millennial values and 
millennial culture and how it applies to the workplace, whether it's in like the Harvard Business Review or Forbes magazine has some great articles about it. And I think, you know, one of the things that millennials seem to really value is the ability to be a part of change that's occurring within their cultural organization. And I think medical education has traditionally resisted this because it just takes so long for the culture to change. And so it feels like the superiors in medical education now are still operating in the more 1950s through 1970s area of standardization and tradition and academic regimentation. And then students who are coming from this millennial generation where everything is hyper-connected over the Internet are looking for a lot more of the collaborative environment that we're more accustomed to. And so there's, I think that that's creating some of the tension between a student's desire for change and the speed at which it can actually happen. Yeah, and, and it's so interesting to see this. And as we had on the show not long ago, uh, this uh, team uh, at uh, Penn State University Park starting the new medical, the offshoot of the regular medical campus in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, and they were using an Olin-like partner year uh, with uh, five students uh, involved in the in co-designing some of what was going to be uh, uh, different about uh, physician education in this new program. I, I'm, I'm hearing that that's that that kind of thing is an outlier, but it but it sounds like exactly the kind of thing that plays into what millennials want. Well, Jack, then Maggie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what they're doing at Penn State University Park is is incredible, and I would encourage anybody who's listening to this episode who's interested in that to go back and listen to the episode that you did with them because it was just phenomenal and very enlightening to hear how innovative their curricular program is. Maggie, what do you think? Absolutely. I think they're an outlier. I think that that's good, though. That means there's hope. And do listen to the previous recording. <laughs> well, you know, and I think part of the challenge here is, and uh, Jack, you were talking about the speed of, um, Jack and Maggie, were talking about the speed of change or the lack of speed. But I, it just seems to me that some of that is the lack of good OD, the lack of good organizational development. I mean, the private sector has actually been pretty good about making fairly rapid and substantive and sometimes radical cultural change in fairly short order if you kind of are, if you kind of think you're thoughtful about it, you have good models of what you're doing, and then you have good processes and, and, and good OD support. So, but higher ed seems to pride itself in not having any organizational development or very little. And actually the medical OD that you talked about, Maggie, is actually, that's certainly more than the average bear, say, in engineering education. And, and uh, it, but it seems to me that a lot, of, a lot of the lack of speed is a lack of understanding that you can't, you can't do it with uh, uh, the appointment of a committee, Maggie, then Jack. <laughs> oh, and how many... Committees are really effective. <laughs> how many chairs know how to run committees? I agree. I mean, if we had taken this through through the standard processes at Georgetown, it would have been three years, and there's no guarantee it would have passed. So we just did it. Well, and you would have compromised the hell out of all the good stuff, and at the end, it would, it would have been kind of mushy, and nobody would have liked it very much. Yeah, it would have been. Yeah, people would have been crap. People would have not wanted to sign up, and we would have had to use their you know instructors that they chose. Jack, your comment. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it. I think it likely would have gotten would have gotten neutered along the way. Um, and I, I think that schools are in a really tough spot because 
of how standardized and how compressed the medical education curriculum already is that it doesn't leave much room for these type of innovative curricular advancements. And, you know, unfortunately, the reality is that the uh, LCME, which is the the Liaison Committee for for Medical Education, really establishes a lot of the curricular goals and then puts it on the schools themselves to reverse engineer the way that the curriculum fits. And, you know, we are packing so much information into the four years that there, it's just, it's really hard for schools to find the time and the space for these type of curricular advancements. And at the same time, it's hard for the, for the LCME to facilitate the change because if they're going to make a recommendation, it applies to every school across the nation and schools may not be equipped to do it or may not be ready to be held accountable for that change. So it's a tough spot. I think, you know, building into the curriculums and a space for this type of innovation and a space for this type of experimentation could really support the organizational development you were talking about. Yeah. So um, you've, you've seen, and actually Maggie, you called this out before um, and maybe at the risk of some repetition, you know, the, the number of, we call for a number of things uh, in a whole new engineer. I, I'm hearing that a number of, you know, a number of them are in alignment with the, um, um, the whole new doctor, the whole new physician. What, what's, um, in what ways is, are are the are the problems that we're talking about the cultural emotional engagement problems similar or different? Uh, Maggie, then Jack. You know, I think there's so many similarities, and I really like Chapter Seven, which is a whole new professor from expert to coach. I yeah. I see teaching as facilitating learning, which you mentioned in that chapter, and seeing students' faces light up when they figured out a solution when they've done it makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, Jack. Yeah, I think, you know, the similarities that exist really, the ones that stood out to me stem from the fact that engineering and medicine are both these, you know, hard, scientific, regimented fields that have really relied on, I think, knowledge-based competencies for a long time. And when we look at um, a whole new engineer and the work that you're doing and the work that we're trying to piggyback off of and bring into medical education, it's, you know, looking to manage that polarity pair, again, between knowledge-based and skill-based or really uh, technical knowledge and non-technical knowledge. Yeah. And I, the, other, the other thing I, that, that we see, I think, is the way that you were able, with your work in A Whole New Engineer, to really operate outside of the traditional education system um, and then take an outside-in approach. We're trying to model that uh, with the way that we're a- a- approaching our program. We've got about a minute left, and I want to give you each about uh, thirty seconds to give your, you know, what, what, Maggie, what uh, short piece would you like to leave the, or short uh, bit of wisdom or advice or comment would you like to leave with our listeners? Um, get a coach. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, agreed, uh, Jack. How about you? Yeah, I would agree. Get a coach, and then the other thing is to all the medical students who might listen to this, just remember that we're all in this together. Great. Well, you know, I'm really uh, grateful that you guys, uh, and and it, it's hard to schedule uh, a person in the third third year medical uh, rotation to come on the program. I'm grateful you were able to find the, the time. I enjoyed our time together, and uh, maybe uh, as this develops, we can get, get you back on the show. <laughs> well, stay tuned. That would be great. That would be great. 
You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to our guests, uh, Maggie Carey and Jack Penner. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.